0: Welcome to the podcast of ideas you're about to listen to a recording from the belfast battle of ideas an event that took place in the crescent arts center in belfast on the 26th of march 2022 in partnership with imagine belfast festival and the academy of ideas this final debate of the day was titled can culture survive the culture wars with speakers including rosemary jenkinson phil harrison and olivia hartley in the chair was me, Ella Whelan. All right, hello, everyone. So welcome back. Those of you who uh, don't know me, my name is Ella Whelan. I'm the uh, co-convener of the Battle of Ideas Festival. Um, you'll see leaflets out there. There's one in London happening um, on the 15th and 16th of October. And I'm also a journalist, and I wrote a book called What Women Want. Um, am really pleased to be here, invited um, by Peter with the Imagine... Uh, Belfast Festival and representing the Academy of Ideas and thanks to you all for sticking it out in this sunny day um, in this dark room but it's been a really fantastic uh, day of discussion so thanks for all your contributions so we're finishing we've gone from uh, universities and students to the media, journalists, wider discussions about the law and now I think we're turning to a place where cancel culture questions about free speech seem to be most pointed. Um, there are the most amount of examples of um, uh, calls for censorship of cancel culture, as it's called, within the arts. Um, maybe that says something about the arts. I don't know. Um, are <laughs> Particularly kind of notoriously, perhaps unfairly described as an elitist um, uh, institution or section, sector. Um, but certainly from Calls to cancel books, as is happening in America. I mean, has this happened throughout history? But isn't, at the moment, this is happening in America in relation to taking certain books off the curriculum for various reasons. Um, cancellations of exhibitions for various reasons. Maybe they have too many nudes. Maybe they don't have the right amount of nudes. Maybe they don't have the right type of nudes. Um, you know, publishers um, calling time on their authors because of social media spats. There has been, and you know, most recently in relation to the context of Ukraine, um, Russia phobia and Russian sanctions blurring into some pretty mad cancellations of certain universities stopping their reading groups on Dostoevsky or um, Philharmonic orchestras in Cardiff, deciding that they're not going to play Tchaikovsky and that kind of thing. So the question of this this question we've uh, left for the last session, can culture survive the culture wars, is as you can imagine, we've already taken some kind of liberty to say, there is a problem with culture wars and there's a problem with cancel culture the question is can um, culture survive it what is to be done in relation to artistic freedom um, is this just although I've as you said we're taking liberties with it and take and assuming something actually is calls for a neutering or a sanitizing or a limiting of art does it have any benefits in a new modern world in which we are having discussions about people's sensitivities or um, a changing landscape for the arts? Is it right to suggest that certain individuals, whether it be R. Kelly, Michael Jackson, um, you know, uh, shouldn't be played anymore or should we be more robust and be able to differentiate between the art and the artist and anything else relating to the culture wars and art? Um, so my panel today um, to lead us through this discussion are a fantastic group of Um, people involved in the arts and writing and filmmaking and all sorts, um, and newspapers. And I'll just briefly introduce them, but they all have fantastic bios. You should go look them up. Um, So right next to me sat here on my left is Rosemary Jenkinson. Um, who is a short story writer and a prolific um, playwright, most recently of Billy Boy in 2021, um, and a short story called The Marching Season. Uh, And she's also a recognised arts council of Northern Ireland, major artist, um, because of the quality of her work and how much of um, it is. And she has a story relating to cancel culture and publishers, which I'm not going to summarize because I'll leave for her to um, talk about, which I think gives a really good example of the reality of what's happening. So welcome, Rosemary, and thank you for your time. Uh, next to me here, we have Phil Harrison. Uh, Phil is a writer uh, and an author of books, the book, The First Day, which is his debut novel. And he's also a filmmaker um, of *Even Gods, as well as um, other award-winning shorts like uh, Ongoing On Home and The Good Man. Um, He's also written a, uh, which I haven't brought up here with me, which is a terrible, I'm terrible at advertising, a Letters on Liberty, which is my project with the Academy of Ideas of short pamphlets on freedom. And Phil wrote a brilliant one on literature and the power of reading and what reading does to you in terms of opening your mind and um, opening your world experiences. So it's the dark blue one on the table, and you should get a copy because it's absolutely fantastic and beautiful, and this gives you a little bit of taste of his writing. He's also done that horrible thing that people do throughout lockdown when the rest of us were baking banana bread and scratching our backside, he decided to um, launch a a new novel that's coming out and also a board game. So he's one of these creators that doesn't stop creating. So welcome to Phil, thanks for being here. And last but not least, over there sat next to Phil is Olivia Hartley. Um, Olivia is the publisher at The Critic, which is a really exciting, uh, still relatively new um, magazine, which... um, it seeks to kind of—we uh, were just talking about the media. Has, I think, sought to kind of rise above some levels of the council culture debate and bring new and interesting writers to the fore. Also, allow a space where writers who um, perhaps some other publications won't touch, like myself, um, the space to to think about things and bring readers a, a different opinion. And actually, um, the most recent one was the. The, uh, marking a year of your position in that, so, so yeah, it was. yes, so a celebration um, in that role. She's also, um, you know, she's uh, commissioned some very exciting re- writers, think people who push boundaries like, you know, Julie Bindle in relation to um, kind of gender-critical feminism or other people. So really, I, I urge you to check out the critic, either buy it in print or read it online. So welcome, Olivia. So can we welcome all our panellists? <laughs> so... Um, I'm going to because because we only have an hour. I'm only going to ask a few questions of the panel, and then we'll go out. And then maybe I'll ask you a few more, and we'll have a, uh, we'll have a bit more time for you to answer. But Rosemary, let's start with you because I mean, tell us anything you want to tell about that um, situation that happened to you. But also, I wanted to, in relation to that, I uh, and maybe after you tell us that, I wanted to ask whether you think things have changed in the arts because I often when I'm talking about this, um, you know, people say, well, you know culture wars in the arts i mean it's as old as time it's you know whether it be bishops or kings or whoever was previously saying you can't say that or you can't paint that or you can't print that 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 it was ever thus but do you think it's do you think today's kind of culture wars are different than anything else
1: okay yeah um, yes in terms of well yeah everything in the past with censorship used to be religion and now we're in a completely different Situation and my experience. Um, so I, I had written last year an article uh, for a magazine called Fortnight, a local one in Northern Ireland. And um, and it's funny we were going talking earlier about how in Northern Ireland we think we can talk more, we can be more open. We're not um, cowed, but I'm about to tell you that we are. Um, and. So, I wrote this article and it was about Northern Irish troubles writing and how it is, there is too much of it, in my opinion. Um, it is a kind of easy default mechanism to fall into. And uh, I did, uh, I referenced a lot of local writers and what they were writing. And so, okay, published it. A lot of um, kickback on Twitter, anger from the writers. And I understood that, yes. um, You know, they have perfect right to answer. There was an article in the Irish Times that said that um, I was silencing other writers through writing this article, which I certainly wasn't. It was a conversation piece. It was a piece of acerbic, polemic. Um, So, you know, and it had... Uh, hyperbole in it, you know. So I used a lot of rhetorical arts as I thought in it. Anyway, um, so five days after the article, uh, my publisher contacted me and said, uh, "We we've decided to rescind your novel. We the, the offer to publish your novel." And this has been going in, uh, you know, it'd been a verbal agreement for a long time. And I'm just like, oh, you know, this is crazy. And they said, because you have antagonized the majority of your local peers. And uh, we would like, uh, we only want to work with writers who expand their readership. So, anyway, so that was, I couldn't, couldn't get over it. Um, and usually, in, so things happen, things fall through in literature. And I thought, okay, I'll just sweep this under the carpet, pretend everything's okay. But I couldn't. I think because um, I was writing about cancel culture, so it was kind of the irony of it. So I thought, well, so am I going to come go public with it? So I did. And yeah, and still there was a lot of, still a lot of criticism for me for going public about... You know, exposing my publisher for being against free speech because, um, you know, that is my opinion. We should have free speech for anything and any article should not, you should not be punished. And that's my opinion. And I've looked at everything, you know, uh, other writers that it's happening to. So, you know, um, Kate Clancy. Looking at things, so yeah, so it's a, it's a very prevalent thing right now and very
0: disturbing. And do you, I mean just on that historical point? Do you because it has? You know, you said you were writing about cancel culture. Yeah. Things seem to have reached a kind of fever pitch where it's like every week now. There's something else. It's either a you know stat. I mean, statues are slightly different because they have a history bent to it. But there's someone saying that book can't be published. Someone saying that author should be silenced and. Well, why? Why is it happening now if you know, rather than you seem to have the historical period which had its problems, and then this kind of hiatus where everyone was sort of OK with culture, and now culture has become this intensely politicized thing. Yeah,
1: why? Um, Again, yeah, I do think it is just the rise of social media, because it's so much more prominent. I posted the article on social media. That was my mistake. If I'd never posted it, no one would have ever known hardly. You know, it's a small magazine. So once you put that out, and then you've got such a congregation against you, because, right, I wrote an article criticizing other writers, you could say, that usually... Other writers, writers don't do that normally. You might get a review of your work, but it's about an individual. So I was doing something that was different, which actually aggravated people then, um, because it's not the norm. So I think if you stand... Maybe, maybe we are more individualists now and do stand up against things. But I do think... I, I totally think it's social media has made people um, intolerant um and yeah and group group mechanics are attack 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 mm-hmm. I, I i don't know or, but also it's a vulnerability we were talking about the more mental health more vulnerable everyone wants to be a victim nowadays so they're playing the victim
0: mm-hmm. okay great thanks um olivia if i just come to you now because i mean uh, you know rosemary's just talked about the fact that maybe we're all more individualistic in relation to this but there's and and maybe there's upsides to that, but maybe the downside is there seems to be a lack of solidarity in some respects among writers, artists, people who can see this happening to their colleague and stay silent. So, for example... Um, and we were talking about this in the break, most recently, uh, Philip Pullman, who got embroiled in the Kate Clancy row, um, has just had to resign from the Society of Authors. Um, he basically stuck up for this author, Kate Clancy, who was sort of being cancelled for a book that she wrote with some fairly hairy descriptions of kids in it. Um, and uh, as the president of the Society of Authors, he was pillarized That was a year ago. Now he's had to resign. And he has... Grovelled really, and apologised, and deleted his tweet where he said, you know, if if you uh, judge a book before reading it, you're like the ISIS or Talib- you're like ISIS or Taliban, which is you know very melodramatic language, but it's probably something you would expect the Society of Authors president to say. Don't judge a book by its cover. Um, and is there a kind of someone in the previous debate used the term moral cowardice? Is there a kind of cowardice among? authors and writers and artists who just think oh it's not happening to me so I don't want
2: to get involved in it definitely I think and I even think it goes beyond that in institutional cowardice it's not so much the authors as much as the publishing houses and the art galleries the 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 individual artists and writers you can almost sympathize with because it's going to be financial having principles is costly these days you know a lot of it depends on the patronage of other people reading your work and not everyone's going to be so forgiving if you've if you've got an opinion that goes against the current orthodoxy the responsibility of it i think ultimately does lie with the the publishing houses and you mentioned uh, Kate Clancy and the, they'll they'll come out and they'll they'll say they back them and then they'll capitulate and they'll u-turn and, and i think with that sort of thing you've just got to stick to your guns and you've just got to back your you know the people that work for you all the way. its There's such a lack of loyalty, I think, in, in the sector right now, um, which is making it difficult for anyone to come out and say anything. And we were saying about the rise of social media earlier. I think that is a, a huge cause of it, but I think it's the fact that nowadays everyone has a digital footprint that stretches back years and years and years. It's <laughs> If you have been online at all, it's going to be possible that, you've said something that has offended someone at some point in your life. And, you know, you you just... It's going to come back to bite you. It's everywhere. It lives on the internet. And people just can't see past that, I think, at the moment. So I think a lot of it comes down to cowardice of other people, but you you can kind of sympathise with individual... Authors not wanting to get involved with things, although I think it's great that some do, um, but I think a lot of it is bigger, and it's the places that are meant to represent them are meant to be founded on principles of freedom, uh, freedom of speech, and artistic expression, and they're not um, sticking to kind of their founding ethos in that way. And as I mean, as a publisher and someone
0: who's involved in being responsible for. To a certain degree, for other people's views, so it's and making that distinction that you know, ha- as a magazine publisher, you might not agree with everything in, within that someone writes within the critic, but that you ha- hold that kind of space for things to flourish. I mean, maybe you want to say a little bit about the thing that happened in relation to the kind of threats of legal action with someone like Bindle, or you know, where I, I, how I'm sort of asking, how do you do? You think it's more difficult now? to be able to have to have an artistic or journalistic publication that allows for people to push boundaries? Or is it that, you know, because you, you, you're suggesting that we should be a bit generous to artists because it's difficult, but it is is it also difficult in an increasingly, I mean, the US is terrible, but in the UK, an increasingly litigious kind of approach to these things, is it, do you feel the heat, is what I'm asking as a publisher?
2: Yeah, it, it, you do feel the heat, but I I think... I'm kind of unique from other publishers and that I also do kind of have a fair bit of editorial sway, especially online. And I'll cite an example that happened a few months ago it was that Julie Bindle, um for those of you who don't know her, she's a like a a really well-known feminist um writer on kind of all the hot issues at the moment, um and has been for years. And she wrote a book review of um Laurie Penny's book. Um, who she, uh, Laurie Penny is an American... Well, no, she's a she's a British writer, but she lives in America at the moment. Basically, Laurie Penny, um, who for all kind of appearances seems very much a woman, goes, well, went by, actually, at the time, it's important to note, went, went by they, them pronouns. And throughout the book review, Julie misgendered Laurie, and this caused a lot of fuss in, in the media, and uh, there was a thing in the Evening Standard saying... Oh, this magazine is really rude and bullying, and blah blah blah. And anyway, I came out and I said, "It's not our job as the magazine to compel anyone to adhere to any ideology they don't believe in." And you know, gender ideology is part of that. The use of pronouns—if you want to use your pronouns, that's that's fine by me—but you can't compel other people to adhere to that. Um, and then it happened a few weeks later. We were writing about. Leah Thomas, uh, the swimmer in, in America, and the, the person that was writing on it was referring to Leah using she, she, her pronouns. And someone said that was, but again, we don't interfere with our, if they want to make that choice, um, you've, you've got to respect it. You can't really have an editorial stance on one thing and then you know, another, it, you've got to allow people to express things how they want to express things.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, great, thanks. And Phil, I sort of have a lot I wanted to ask you, but one, I want to ask you how pessimistic do you think the world of the, the ability to create new and exciting things are you know can it can it can the art world survive this pressure from the, the publishers feeling pressure the artist feeling pressure but also is there uh, one thing that strikes me is that with all this discussion about free speech and censorship the pushback often ends up being someone writes a play about free speech or someone puts on a comedy night about free speech and you think oh my god I don't want to go and see that because it's so boring do something else you know do write a play about your mom or something you know is there a danger in which um really this the politics starts to and politics has always been part of art but politics starts to infect in this particular political realm starts to infect the kind of cultural world to such a degree that people can't do anything new. So is it is it almost being um, suffocated from both sides, from the kind of censorious side, but also the inability for people to take the leap to do anything else other than engage with this realm?
3: Um, maybe, I mean, the first question, do I feel pessimistic? I do feel pessimistic, so let's just start there. Okay. Um, but and Maybe even before I can answer that, I need to answer, answer the question you asked Rosemary as well. Um, where does this come from? Is it different than, than what was before? Um, I think it is different. And the reason is that this isn't actually a war about culture. It's a war about morality. So I think to understand the culture, we have to understand where it comes from and why it's not the same as other debates over culture in the past. For me, it comes from the death of God. The 20th century was the death of any grand narrative that we could all get behind. Um, and in the absence of that, and in the absence of the authority that, that, that we can all ascribe to, um, rushes in some brilliant movements. So the liberation movements for black liberation and gay liberation and women's liberation and so on. Essentially, the authority that, that this grand narrative had were now claimed back by each of these movements. Um, and this was a wonderful thing. This is a wonderful movement of freedom in the 20th century. But not only did the gains of the authority that were once here be taken by these groups. The other roles that that authority played had to be then taken by these groups too. And one of those roles that that religion played, or God played, was in the management of guilt. And what has now happened, I feel, in the culture war, and the only way to understand the culture war is that now, where once God managed guilt, or God's representatives, and we all agreed, or pretended to agree to go along with that, now these individual groups manage guilt on our behalf. And there is no, uniting, there's no unifying narrative that allows us to resist this. And this is why the culture war is essentially a war between different individual groups, determining who, what is good and bad, and what is to be done to uh, ameliorate the effects of goodness and badness and so cancellations and prescriptions and so on are part of this for me that sounds a very convoluted way of saying something but actually i think it's really important to understand that that when we talk about culture i feel we're talking about the management of guilt by groups who have rightly and wonderfully taken back authority that was once withheld from them by primarily religion but not just religion science too was one of those grand narratives and so but the, the gains that have been made have a flip side and that flip side to me means that um unless we can return to religion which i doubt or replace that some kind of universal nar- universalizing narrative that we can all abide by then individual groups and identities will be made to carry a moral weight that they can't bear I'm not pessimistic or I am pessimistic I don't know what the, I don't know how we get out of that and so I think that's why the, the sometimes the minutiae of a culture debate can seem absurd because it is it is absurd because there's something else really going on so um the second part of your question sorry that was a very long answer but the second part of your question is I, I'm not convinced though that there that 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 is the only way to manage this so I do think you're right that there's an impulse then to start writing books about you know, cancel culture. But that's just bullshit. That's never going to get us anywhere. I actually think the solution to that is, it's not a solution, sorry. I think the only response to that is to find new ways of universalizing the human condition. And that's what art was always about before. And so there's no reason why I can't continue.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, great, thanks. Well, I'm going to come out to the audience in a bit, but I just want to ask you all one last question. And um, I was thinking about, this is, you know, uh, I want to ask whether you think anything should go in art. And, and whether there should be no boundaries, no barriers, um, content-wise, whether we should, you know, allow uh, very controversial people who do beautiful things to be on display like Eric Gill or Picasso or whatever, and whether we should allow very boring people to do controversial work like Tracey Amon, you know, to be able to put up pictures of a v- vagina with money coming out of it, um, and and whether anything should go, but. I also just wanted to caveat by maybe the audience can pick up on this if they want to. It's been mentioned and throughout the day is that walking around, I took myself off for an eight-mile walk this morning, um, or looking at the murals around um, Falls Road and Shankill, and all through Belfast, and you realise that in certain contexts, culture means uh, can be loaded with a very different meaning, and uh, uh, and you know. In certain contexts, it's been ruled that no, anything doesn't go. And you can't sing that song here. And you can't um, paint that on the side of the wall. Whereas in, you know, in maybe in my bubble in London, it's it's much more relaxed. Um, so just, you know, do you think that there should be ultimate artistic freedom? Or do you think
2: there should be some limits? Olivia, let me start with you. Well, I think the interesting thing there is who gets to decide what we do and do, and do not allow. I think... Artists have done bad things always. Look at Caravaggio, the Renaissance painter who murdered someone and, and ran away um, from his sentence, and Eric Gill, the sculptor who sexually abused his daughters. I think if you enjoy their work, that doesn't say anything fundamentally bad about you as a human being because it, in a their art is distinct from their, from their life. If their, life was, if their art was imitating... Their um, their crimes or uh, emanated it in any way. I think I think that's slightly slightly different. Um, I think you can absolutely separate art from the artist uh, without without question. Um, but yeah, the question is who decides what you can and can't do. All all museums and, and galleries are in a way are curated with some sort of with some sort of aim in mind. Um, so in a way, it kind of is. Many of them have been cancelled anyway. Mm-hmm. Rosemary
0: yeah
1: um obviously well I don't know that it is obvious nowadays, but obviously I believe in that um, writers should write exactly what they want, and there are no limits um I mean, I remember some years ago you know it was coming in things sort of started changing. I noticed about ten years ago um that that you were under people would say to you which they hadn't before um Rape isn't funny. You can't make a joke in a play about that. It was starting to become so much more prevalent. and But actually, you can. You can, and particularly I, as a woman, can make a joke about it because it is something... Maybe it's more difficult for a man, but I believe that it should be okay for me because I'm t- joking about my body, and, and it's okay. So I think, yeah, I should be able to joke about anything and be able to say anything and I think nowadays writers are becoming so safe um, uh, and it is a real danger now it's totally bland and colourless and ri- risk averse what do you As-
0: think about sensitivity sensitivity readers or having some know yeah. are you yeah. a skeptic of that
1: oh, yeah completely I mean that whole idea uh, I mean I would change if 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 a publisher has has a, a problem with something. I may tone down. Um, you know, I wouldn't want to make a total fight about it. You know, unless I really, really wanted it. So it's not like I wouldn't. But in in the literature should be insensitive. I mean, isn't that the point? we should be you know smashing people in the face not just uh, it, it, verbally rather than uh not stepping on toes so sensitivity reader is a total uh, uh contradiction it's a paradox for literature
3: phil um yeah kafka said a, a book must be the axe for the frozen sea within us and there's no sensitivity readers want to help that <laughs> um so i think rosemary's right in that sense um yeah i, I I'm not sure I agree with Olivia in terms of, I'm not sure you can separate the art from the artist. But that, to me, actually isn't the problem. In fact, I think that one of the things that's going on within the culture war is is a concept of purity. Um, And actually, um, art is supposed to have a purity, or the artist is supposed to have a certain kind of purity, which I think is quite a childish idea. Um, I think that good art helps us to see ourselves in our dirtiness and our darkness and our brokenness. And what is being fought over within the culture war is uh, a kind of an inability to accept that that's what human beings are like. The human condition actually have has that tragic dimension, and it must be expelled. And the problem of course within that is that you know when the repressed returns, it returns stronger and more aggressive and more brutal. So I, I would say that the, the kind of art that I think we're all agreeing to, certainly to the extent that we want to see artists have a certain freedom, but they must make work that offends. They, it's not that they can, but they must because only then, only when we are pushed to recognize the dark elements and parts of ourselves, can anything transformative happen. And I don't mean just utilitarian as in art makes us happy or, or I don't really care if it does, but if it, it allows us to see ourselves in a different way, and allows us to own our, our brokenness in a different way, then other th- other things might happen in our lives. And that's the kind of art, that's the only kind of art that really matters to me.
0: Brilliant, okay, thanks. Let's throw it open um, to anyone. You know, some of the things I've been thinking about to try and spark some discussion is, there is there are um, double standards when it comes to what kind of um, culture war happens. So, you know, you can be as out, although I mean, there's, there is some question about showing nudity in art galleries. But for a long time now, but for a long time, whether it be with the you know the YBA's Young British Artists or um, any of these kind of 90s radicals, the more disgusting and uh, provocative, either sexually or you know bodily, you were. The more the tape wanted you, and the more um, you know, people wanted to platform you. It was a because it was a real fashion, and the idea of a fence was central to the work, um, and that's that kind of is still fine. People still want to put on Damien Hirst's exhibitions and all that kind of thing. But the another kind of disgust or provoking another kind of uh, sickening feeling in terms of content, whether it be, uh, you know, putting on a display of an exhibition of someone who um, depicted... Images from slavery, or whether it be someone who wrote about, um, made a joke about rape or something like that, is beyond the pale. So, is there a kind of who is making these decisions and is there a kind of a, a double standard in art and anything else anyone wants to ask? So, let's throw it open just here. Uh,
4: thanks for the talk. Um, when you were talking, it made me think about that book um, by Dave Hickey, you know, The Invisible Dragon. So, he wrote that in the 90s about how essentially the idea of beauty was being completely disregarded and that these museums and and academies were now having to judge and assess a work in terms of its representation of the public and in terms of moralism. But what was really interesting in that book, because there's been chat about Caravaggio, was Caravaggio was referenced in that book and the Renaissance and the fact that all of these artists had a certain orthodoxy. I mean, if you go to any art gallery, it's a lot of Jesus. Like, you know, there's a lot of, you have to p- depict things from the Bible, but beauty was a way to sub- to bring in subversive ideas. So Caravaggio did that because he had, an, he had a structure that he was supposed to um, keep, but he was able to kind of subvert that through this beauty. And I'm just wondering, if the panel have any um, thoughts about beauty, whether something has happened in the visual art has maybe moved into literature, and also if there is a way for for subversive ideas to come in, even if you're prescribed what you're supposed to write about, can you still comment on the human uh, condition anyway, somehow? Brilliant, thanks.
5: Hi. Um, I am. Um, uh, I just wanted to ask about the cancellation issue and the moral panic side of this. Um, I'm old enough to remember the 80s and the 90s, and my dad was um, working as an author then. And funnily enough, it just I just remembered the story. He was actually cancelled in like 1992 um, from his job at the Irish News here in Belfast as a columnist um, because he suggested that. Um, uh, birth control should be widely used. And he was, uh, the, the outcry was such that he was fired from that post. Um, so, I, and I remember even in the 80s in New York, there was like a, a column called log rolling and backstabbing specifically about literary world uh, feuds. So I think this idea of cancellation has been there ever since people have been writing. Um, I personally feel like it's quantitatively and Uh, It just feels very different to me now. It feels even more toxic. But I'm wondering, is it just a numbers game? Is it because more people have more platforms? Or is there something deeper and more nefarious at work?
0: Brilliant, thanks. Hello. Um, I think everything you've said so far is is very interesting. But, Phil, you were talking about
2: the, um, uh, this is a war about morality and not culture. Um, When you spoke about uh, the authority that the, the Grant narrative had, um, now being possessed by, by liberation groups. I think
0: that... I believe that there's... There, um, we have an overarching narrative now of individualism, like especially in the West. And um, I think that
2: uh, individualism has led to polarisation, which has contributed massively to cancel culture. As a question to all of you, how would you
5: solve th- this particular issue of having an overarching narrative when we are having ideas being stifled.
0: Great, thanks.
6: Yeah, so many things. Where to start? Um, yeah, with regards to, I am really convinced actually that the kind of um, deeper values are where the important questions reside. Um, and that there are deeper, deeper values with regards to um, the, the question of a, a singular narrative. It's a done deal that that can't be achieved. It's, it's bigger than religion. It's to do with living in the modern world. It's to do with modern technology and mass society. So that's a done deal. But I think that there actually is uh, an attempt to create a kind of a unifying um, mode of thinking or means of, uh, of, um, of describing uh, um, who we are, what we are, which I would call cultural structuralism. And one of the things that's come out in terms of intellectually that, that's in the background to, to what's happening culturally is that there's been a shift away from, I think, a, a kind of a, the illusion that that postmodernism and that meaning didn't have any basis. Um, that's, that has been kind of dispensed with. The deconstruction mode has been dispensed with. And we've got back to what was always there in the background, which is basically moral assumptions. What's different uh, in terms of the evolution on this attempt to create a kind of a unifying narrative of a thought is that it's actually been internalized by each of us in terms of our own self understanding through identity categories. Identity politics is the innovation which makes us not just individual people, persons, who have a a kind of a spirit that's expressed through our creativity, but that we, I'm, I'm not a person, I represent historical forces, I'm culturally constructed this is, this is uh, raging through as a kind of paradigm in a very powerful way, and it's entrenching very rapidly. I think that's where the attempt to create some kind of centered meaning is being, is being um, uh, it, it's actually being achieved culturally at the moment. Um, and I think with regards to you know, making a rape joke, it kind of touches on that thing of saying, well, if I, uh, you know, as a woman, in relation to my own body, uh, I, can, I can make that joke. That's, that's written into the, the power dynamics of how we talk to each other. But within the, within the, um, the assumption there of what's happening rhetorically and then the background ide- ideologically, is, is actually an attack on the idea that creativity is a place where we can dissolve who we are, we can mutate who we are, recreate who we are. Beyond all these categories, there's something very profound happening with regards to the erosion of what the cre- how the creative space functions and what we can do with it. This whole idea of shared, sp- of shared spirit, um, that somebody from a completely you know, so-called different identity category can share spirit through creative expression, that's a, that's something very fundamental to what creativity is. Mm-hmm. So, and I think it's it's there. It's kind of written in in the kind of rhetorical kind of go-to's that we have in terms of just in our everyday speech. So, um, so that's yeah the point I'd like to make.
0: Brilliant. Thanks. I will take one more in this round, and I'll come back to everyone at the right at the back there. Um,
7: I very much agree with those points by that last speaker. Um, uh, I think what's interesting about the contemporary setup is that all of these uh, prohibitions, if you like, on the artist, or, you know, the, the, the ways in which art is being circumscribed, they emanate from the elites in society. There's nobody marching through the streets calling for books to be burned or for artists' you know, paintings to be ripped off the walls or whatever. It's the elite in society that are increasingly looking for something that they... This man here uh, uh, was talking about... You know, Sorry, the speaker um, was talking about how, you know, religion has been replaced by a new narrative. Well, in actual fact, I, d- I think I disagree with your, your narrative, if you like. I think that, you know, the elites in society, like in British society, a long time ago gave up on the values they had about whether it's freedom of speech, whether it's sort of a sense of what it is to be a human being, or whether, you know, the, 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 the enlightenment narrative, I would call it. You know, the Enlightenment art that was so profound in relation to the arts and presenting us with what it is to be an artist and where to go as artists and writers. All of that kind of Enlightenment idea of the free human individual uh, which replaced religion, it is that that it's under attack. And the elites have given up on the values associated with that whole movement in history, if you like. And that's why we're having such a kind of, such a detrimental impact on the whole of kind of not just art but all of the things we've been talking about sort of even be, you know in the earlier sessions today.
0: Okay let me come back to the panel and I'll come back out so um, keep your hands ready. Phil do you want to comment on anything?
3: Um, I, I wish it were just the elites. I mean I'm not I, I don't know that I would disagree with you that the elites have got abandoned those things but that's not I, I don't think the problem. The problem is that we have abandoned them as a society and, and and, and we didn't have a choice. You, you, can't, you can't commit to a... There's not a God to believe in anymore, and I don't mean... I, I'm not making a religious point there. <laughs> that um, Stephen Marsh makes the interesting point in an article recently in the, in the LA Review of Books that people born in the 1930s, over 70% of people born in the 1930s believe democracy is a fundamentally good thing that should be protected at, great, whatever, at whatever cost. Um, less than 30% of people... Uh, in their 30s or young, or 30 years or younger believe that. Less than 30%. There are many other values that might be more important than democracy. So that's not the elites. That's, that's, there is a cultural move there. That's what I've been trying to trace. Now, I'm not trying to defend just the, my reading of it. I'm sure my reading of it's quite, it's certainly quite naive and quite blunt. But it's more than just an elite project, this. Um, and, and, and therein lies the difficulty, because it was just an elite project. You replace the elites or get rid of them is it's a it's a issue of values like essentially what's at stake there there are competing ideas of freedom so um it it actually touches on the question the lady asked about individualism um versus universalism how can there is a dichotomy between those things how can those things be brought together i mean this is the great Freudian question how can you be uh an individual in a society Freud believed that it was you couldn't it was just the what you had to give up too much of yourself of your own desire to be to be civilized so and and I think religion played a role in in kind of managing that, but now we don't have that so i I don't think it is just um the elites, but to touch upon what might be possible i think if if this is to some degree about competing ideas of freedom then when we find ourselves in a cultural conversation or or having to take sides culturally, I think it's worth thinking about or asking, on on both sides of this debate, um, what conception of freedom is being argued for? I think it's very easy, especially for me anyway, as a very judgmental person, to immediately assume that the other person is stupid or malicious. (laughs) But often, that's not the case. Often, they have a different conception of freedom than I do. And so what must be done, I feel, is to find better ways of talking about freedom. So, for example, there's a writer called Paul Kingsnorth, an uh, English guy who moved to Ireland recently, um, or a few years ago, lives in rural Ireland, and he talks about freedom versus the machine. For him, the machine is everything. Capitalism, social media, everything. That that, that kind of removes from us the ability to be individuals. Um, and the, he's constantly kind of examining every, in each of these little cultural moments in the context of, does this... Does this feed the machine or does it feed the individual subject? Because for him, to go back to this question, the individual subject, the only way you can enter a group freely is to be an individual standing on your own. That's the paradox of this. The only way you can actually be part of a group is to be an individual making that choice. Otherwise, the choice is being made for you somewhere else.
0: Great. Olivia, anything you want to pick up on?
2: Um, I think the point that I'd like to go back to was Jenny's question about, well, her story as well, about her, her dad being, you know, cancelled for his views on birth control. Um, and I think I think what we've been talking about today, about arts and, and the artists and, and writers, is that we focused on people that have kind of committed crimes or have done depraved acts, whereas now a lot of the cancellations that are taking place are merely just for holding opinions, which are entirely legal. Um, And the thing with the birth control thing is that that is something now that's not really a controversial uh, view, but I guess has been, kind of has alleviated over time. Whereas now things that are controversial were things that we didn't even consider about 10 years ago, such as the categories of what a man and a woman are. A lot of that I I personally think has to do with postmodernisms we were talking about, where everything is a construction um, and deconstructing everything and going back to so many ideas floating about, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but what it does kind of assume uh, at the moment is that we can cancel people for these ideas because it assumes that there's only one correct way of thinking, which isn't the case. Mm-hmm.
0: Or also, I mean, the, the, you know, the idea of, is there actually an objective truth that you can then, that you were talking about subverting the art, like, that you would have to paint Jesus Yeah, but then you could do you could like put smirk in his eye, or you could do something over in the left hand side of the painting because uh, you know that there was a truth, and then there was the subversion of it. And you you know, Rosemary, anything you want to pick up on? But one thing I was thinking about to throw out to the audience after is, cancel culture is so judgmental. It says you're wrong, and you're wrong, and you're wrong, and you're right. But actually it's what you know the flip side of it is also that there is a real hostility to judgment in relation to art so you can say that's um po- you know politically incorrect and cancel it but you can't say that painting is terrible and it shouldn't be hanging there because it's bad quality and because objectively it's bad art um and you know this is a badly written book you can't say that but you can say it's a badly written book about the wrong things, so the judgment is is sitting in this really awkward position where there's a whole load of judgment going on of the wrong sort and not of the right sort, but pick up on anything else uh, you want, rosemary that's interesting, Ella, because I was just thinking um, uh,
1: people criticized my article not only for what it was said but what was said in it, but also artistically but, uh, I think the Irish Times said it was crudely written, you know, but that. Portrays their their bias. They will use. They will criticise the art, and it's hiding what that they actually hate. Your opinions. So I think that's happening a lot now. Um, so um, uh, interesting. About is there something nefarious going on? And um, yeah, I do kind of wonder. I, I was sort of thinking that in. In 2016, we had the waking of feminists and the feminists sort of rise in literature whereas where women became the most powerful. Then very almost uh, conveniently quickly, it was all different groups. We've got our working class group. We've got our, yeah, black literature group. We've got our, um, yeah, uh, gender group. All these groups, and are they trying to fracture? As soon as we get a tiny bit of to uh, match where the men have been in literature. Were these coming up to sort of um, destroy women? Because also, I can't help noticing that most of the people who are cancelled the worst are women. Um, So I kind of, yeah, so I think I'm wondering about that. And uh, I think, I mean, look, it's about platform providers being bold and not it, it's not about artists it's about the platform providers coming together uh, and saying this cannot happen any more cancellation so really yeah. can I just
0: it just yeah. to, uh, before we go out to the audience the woman point how then do you explain the kind of anti-dead white male phenomenon that seems to go on in relation to you know you can't read Shakespeare because he's a dead pale, pale, stale whatever the phrase is man and that there is a you know, uh, maybe you're hinting at it. Is there a problem with identity politics in that far be it for me to defend the white male, but is there a... Actually, is it that it's pushing against... that Women might get cancelled, but it seems like, particularly in literature if you're a white man writing in 1920s, forget it, you know, before 1980s, forget it, you're not going to be on the curriculum, you're not going to be in the bookshop. Well,
1: I still think uh, a lot of them are, there are so many that that haven't been cancelled, I'm thinking of somebody like John Banville, who has said plenty of things that could have been cancelled and haven't, so I think these, I think for for a man starting out now it's been really bad but i still think those um ultimate high male riders have not been knocked off their perch it's just that women have joined joined him and now that they're being knocked off the perch mm-hmm.
0: yeah. yeah okay great fair
1: but enough just can
3: i just come back just very quickly b- yeah. very quickly like, part of i think rosemary's right and i think misogyny plays a, a significant role in a lot of cancellation in particular i really i really do um but partly what the strategy that goes wrong that, that many writers or artists do is that they try to appease the bully. Like that strategy has never worked. It never worked in the playground. It's not going to work here. And when you see someone like J.K. Rowling, never read Harry Potter, so have no no skin in this game, but she refuses to be bullied. Now she has a position that allows that. But I think that if enough other people did it, like I noticed even the last couple of weeks, there's a number of gender critical feminists who are beginning to come out and say, I'm starting to get approached by publishers because you know, part of the question was: Is this nefarious or is this money? Like, it's partly money. Like, publishers are publishers are cards. They're always have always been cards, and this never more so than now. But it's beginning to change. So, if you don't play the bully's game, the bully can't win.
0: Okay, very good. Let's go over here. Um, on that point, I mean, what, what role can these new groups that have been set up play? Because you're from the critical view. I mean, and I've seen a few new publishing houses be created, but I also worry. You know, are we retreating into new silos or do we need to change things from the pre-existing kind of artistic institutions and bodies? So, what what do you think?
8: Um, I don't uh, agree with this critique, but I think it's probably worth um, pointing to the panel in terms of, you were asked, uh, you know, does everything go? And in the description for this panel, it was was touched on Jimmy Carr's joke about, uh, you know, sort of travellers dying in the Holocaust and the suggestion that that was a... A positive thing, as a joke, obviously. Um, but the cr- the criticism of this is um, comedians punching down is is the idea of you know, oh, um when they make jokes about trans people, that is punching down because trans people already have a hard time as it is, and you know, making jokes about travellers, they're they're sort of a seen as a a, a marginalised community, and that's punching down. And what we really should be doing is is punching up up at the top. So, what does the panel think about the sort of punching down critique of 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 comedy and art generally.
9: Alsa? Yeah, well, just following on from that, I, I suppose you asked Ella... Um, am I echoing? No, in no, no, that's fine. Um, you asked uh, at the start, should there be any boundaries? And I have no problem saying there should be complete freedom of the artist. That's, that, that's fine. But when you get to Phil's point about do we have a duty to offend, I think there's something to discuss in that because um, if I look back to something like a century ago, and, and I don't know the futurists or something like that, there was definitely something exhilarating about the offence that they gave. It was, it was interesting, and it was, it was exi- or a Stravinsky ballet or or, or, or whatever you, you you know. And I suppose that was because, in a sense, there was a moral centre that could be offended against in an interesting way. Fast forward a hundred years, and a duty to offend becomes a bit more of a difficult concept i think because in a way having lived through as people have mentioned sort of 50 years of postmodernism and deconstructionism and now the culture wars then i suppose we've got to a point where everybody just wants to be offensive and there's kind of not much interesting content behind that you just get to actually fairly boring art a lot of it so in a way there's almost something to be said for connecting with tradition and 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 there's almost something um perhaps it's the the, the the duty to offend is to be conservative. And that'll, that's what ri- will rile everybody up. So kind of, do you think there's something in that or, or, or kind of a talking Great. nonsense?
10: Thanks, we're going to come to the front here and then to the back there. Yeah, this is just following on from your question about like the new silos and often you get these new um, publications and in well, institutions that form potentially to be like, well, we're, we're, we're um, crossing the cultural divide or whatever, but then it's a, a, a crossing the cultural divide that we're doing and not the sort of liberal mainstream media. So that's, that's often a... So I guess that my question is to do with solutions. And I think, uh, Phil, you pointed early on to a contradiction between the fact that this neo-religious impetus that's taking place in, in, in the culture and therefore in art, but art is really a place to work out these contradictions and to come to a sort of a dialectical universalism or something that really touches on our shared humanity. So I guess my question is to do with what are the solutions? Will the solutions always end up being this sort of binary particularist, you know, for example, we're beyond the culture wars and you're not. And maybe the solution is something more kind of, you know, you made a sort of almost Marxist point, you know, artists of the world unite. You know, if we all unite against uh, being forced into this sort of particularist, non-artistic, apolitical dynamic. Maybe that's the solution, but then we have that problem of, um, you know, money. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Lady at the back. Um,
11: I wanted to say something a bit more optimistic. I'm personally very pleased that Rosemary, for instance, went on social media because, you know, we need to have uh, this debate, and I will be looking to get some of your plays and read them because I think, although I share your sort of, boredom sometimes with how the troubles have been portrayed I mean there have been some really um there still is there's still, writing has been very powerful you think of people like Philip Roth Michelle Hulbeck have been talking about the culture wars for many years now um but um I went to this little pub in West London uh to see a play by David Ireland um, having heard him speak and been quite sort of uh, exhilarated and impressed by his sort of fearlessness, if you like, um, and uh, his sort of uh, Martin loyalist Martin McDonough, I, I guess you could say. And there's lots of very shocking things that happen in this tiny stage. Uh, a loyalist who's, you know, an old-style loyalist who's being forced to th- the place called Yes, I Said Yes, uh, I Mean Yes, something like that, um, obviously referencing Joyce. I mean, he's, he's, very, he's very fearless. He's very, he's very brave, this writer, and... Uh, you know this 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 guy, this poor guy who the whole world has changed is being forced at every turn to say yes to things that he completely doesn't believe, so he's 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 going through the whole kind of troubles narrative to get to a bigger problem to get to where we are today so i think I think it's very intelligent writing um but it's very shocking it's very i mean. It, some very bizarre things happen like he has relations with his Catholic next door neighbor's dog because he's so terribly lonely and it's it's very very funny you find yourself laughing at things that you could could never in outside the context of the play you just you think that this is sort of a these are bizarre happenings but he is having this very brave discussion I think that contrary to what I mean it is yes it's, it's pessimistic when you look at the world of publishing and everything. else. So I salute The Critic, I'm a great fan of The Critic, I think um, that's, that's the kind of the bravery that we need from publishers. But writers will write and artists will, will, will have things to say and they, they may be in some kind of pub in, you know, that nobody's heard of in West London, but that's where the conversations will often start, like here today.
0: Brilliant, thanks. Okay, let's, um, Peter who runs the Imagine Belfast Festival, mm-hmm. welcome.
7: Well, I thought I'd interject, um, unfortunately we're going to have to throw you out after a very long afternoon of a intense but a very, in my point of view, a you know, very exhilarating debate. Um, I just really want to thank everybody, you know, first of all attended on such a sunny day, but also the work that's been put in by the Academy of Ideas um, and all the panellists who've come over from far and wide to join us today. Um, I look forward to continuing this debate in our festival, hopefully we will continue to run um, And we can inject, you know, these sometimes difficult, you know, but I think, you know, very important themes you know, in our future programming. So before we close out, again, I just want to thank everybody, you know, for their contributions today and wish you very well in in your future work. Thank you very much.
0: Well, thank you, Peter. Yes, (laughs) thank you. Thank you for taking the chance on on us, the Academy of Ideas, because we do the, we, our game is um, open, free, public debates. And that is a Uh, depressingly that is a controversial thing to do these days so thank you for allowing us to come up and host it. Right, panellists, we're getting kicked out um, in three minutes, that means you've got a minute each. Just anything you want to leave the audience with, anything you want to pick up on and let's do it in the order that we began with. So Rosemary you're uh, Okay,
1: yeah. Um, Do you offend being conservative? Absolutely not. I mean, too many people think nowadays that you are being unkind if you offend individually unkind and you're not, you're just um, uh, expressing... Uh, Opinions and, uh, for instance, PEN organisation only consider censorship uh, uh, as something from another country, via a government. They don't. Whereas we know that censorship is cancel culture and should be regarded as such. Um, And yeah, and uh, David Allen, great. And punching down is fine. Uh, Punching up, punching down, punching behind, all good. (laughs) <laughs> very good thanks
2: rosemary uh, olivia um yeah just on the pun- the punching down thing i watched that joke before coming out here because i had read about it but just i didn't didn't watch it basically um that's i think the beauty of art is that it is so subjective and the way that i interpreted that joke was that it really exposed a lot of the prejudices that we have you know you wouldn't have told that joke i think if people didn't laugh and i think it was very cleverly done rather than i mean obviously it was it was dark it was it was that but it, it, i think it was very it, very cleverly exposed prejudices that still exist that we don't really tend to think about um that's kind of how i interpreted it um as the, you know being a new publications at silo i i kind of i view as silo as something being quite closed off and um Maybe like a separate space, whereas I like to think of the critic as more of a platform for open ideas, many of which are often conflicting, and people ask us what our editorial line is because one day we'll print this, next day we'll print that. I think that's the beauty of it, um, and it wouldn't exist kind of in isolation, it exists because there, there is a demand for these sorts of spaces now. Brilliant, thanks. And Phil?
3: Do we have a duty to, to offend? I think we do, but the, should, is not, the, the duty is not to, to offend morally, it's to offend formally. Cézanne offended the French painting, saying not because, not morally, but by his paints, the way, he, the way he painted, and he transformed painting. Mapplethorpe, in the Dave Vicky book, Mapplethorpe's offense, he had these incredibly beautiful pictures of flowers and men's penises, erect penises. And the problem wasn't just that there were men's penises, but there was, it was that they were beautiful. <laughs> so the, 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 I'm kind of, in some ways, making a, a case that culture should be dragged back into the cultural realm and away from the realm of the moral and that actually beauty in itself can be so offensive that it can be transformative.
0: On that, can we thank our panellists? Thanks for listening to the podcast of Ideas. You can support us by subscribing, sharing, and leaving us a review. Check out our feeds for recordings from the Battle of Ideas Festival Archive and other Academy of Ideas events.